Welcome to the Kyperian Commentary, episode 110. I'm your host, Rick Davis, and with us today we have Kendall Lankford, uh, who's the pastor of the Shepherd's Church in Chelmsford, Massachusetts. And uh, we have him here to talk about an article that he wrote for Kyperian.com, uh, How to Make America Great Again. So I'd love to know how to make America great again. I don't have a, a hat to wear, but <laughs> I'm, I'm imagining I'm imagining a hat there. So oh, thank you. Um, I enjoyed your article. I thought it was basically a good uh, overview of post-millennial thinking in general. Mm. So uh, I'm going to let you talk a little bit about it. Uh, what uh, what do we need to do to make America great again? Well, uh, Rick, thank you so much for having me here. Um, I've been reading the Kyperian articles for a while, and I just I thought this one might be a good fit for the uh, commentary. So I reached out to Yuri and... Um, and send it along, and, and he thought it would be. So uh, praise the Lord for that. Um, as we enter into another crazy year and a half cycle of politics and debates and everything, my heart has just become increasingly um, just frustrated with, with how much we get duped into that whole world and how yeah. much we believe as Christians that, that that's actually going to change things. And and over the last, I don't know, several election cycles, uh, I've just kind of become aware of how religious um, those political movements are, like a change that we can believe in and um, build back better. Like all of these things have a sort of post-millennial vibe, but but they're veneer. They can't actually produce what they, what they claim to produce. And every year we get stuck in the same sort of cycle. So um, I've been preaching uh, sort of these themes for a while, but I thought, hey, why not write an article about it and just sort of describe what I see in scripture is is a biblical view of of building from the bottom up instead of from the top down. And yeah, and that was the uh, that was the motivation for the article, at least. And um, just as I was writing it, I was I was encouraged and blessed by just thinking about systematically, how do we do this, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, just you talking about sort of that post-millennial vision, um, uh, one thing that's left a bad taste in, I think, many scholars' mouths for postmillennialism is that the postmillennialism of the early 20th century was not the postmillennialism of the Puritans. Mm -hmm. So the Puritans had a very um, Christ centered postmillennial view. And if you read some of the early postmillennialists of the 20th century, a lot of them were liberal theologians using the name postmillennialism to refer to their social gospel. Right. Uh, so, you know, the the you know 1920s analogs of what we have today in in things like Black Lives Matter or uh, Antifa that sort of we're gonna we're gonna force social change uh, by politics and things like that by campaigning for politics. So um, this is a very different picture than that. And I think when a lot of people hear postmillennialism, they think the other thing like oh we want to just you know take over the election we want to uh, get our candidates in there and that's going to fix the world. Exactly. Yeah. And it's and sort of the great grandchildren of that movement even um, are are making their are they're rearing their ugly heads today. It's sort of like um, Bethel, the seven mountains yeah. theology mm -hmm. uh, back in the 80s. You've got the moral majority that's that's trying to do mm -hmm. uh, basically what they're doing is they're trading in the long term, good, faithful um, work of the church for a quick and easy top-down approach, which is, it's, it's entirely what culture is promoting just with a sort of a Christian rubber stamp. So um, instead of that, um, we have to 
take a centuries type of view or, or even longer because change happens over time. Unless the Lord by his grace breathes uh, revivalistic life into this country uh, and, it, and it's sort of a national phenomenon, then, then the plotting is what we need to be focused on. Um, one of the things that we often do in the church, not you and I, I don't think, but um, is, is we get so caught up in, in change that has to happen immediately that we put more faith in a political movement than we do in the local church. And we go to church thinking, I can't wait to be raptured out of here. And then we go into public thinking, oh, I can't wait to vote for this candidate. And we don't really see where the disconnect is in that. And it's perpetuating the problem. Right. And it sounds like what you're talking about, you said bottom up earlier, but even now it sounds like what you're saying is um, church outward. So maybe we could use the word ecclesiocentric yeah. movement versus um, civil or political movement, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if that's the case, um, you know, Abraham Kuyper is known for his, uh, there's not one square inch in all of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, doesn't cry mine. Um, when you're talking about putting our hopes in politics or, or a, an election versus putting our hope in Christ and working in the local church, um, to what extent do you think Christians ought to be involved in politics and campaigning and things of that nature? Yeah, I definitely, I, I, I definitely have a view of that. But I think what's happened is, is that we've traded in the local involvement that has to happen uh, for, I cast my vote, I've done my part. Um, maybe I'd, I'd grab my keyboard sword and throw out a few bombs on Facebook or whatever. But uh, I, I see that uh, I guess a good way to to look at the way that I view it is that um, the local has to happen in order to get to the political involvement where Christians are becoming prime ministers and becoming mm-hmm. presidents and and you know ultimately becoming kings and and lords and and whatever else. Um, if you're not doing the first thing, then you can't get to the the latter things, as it were. So um, I think we're trying to skip some of the very early parts of what the church ought to be doing. And we're skipping over that to try to run to the finish line. And it's, it's just not working. Do you think a lot of Christians in local churches have a sense of helplessness about the future of the nation in the sense that they do cast their vote? They go to the polls on election day, they cast their vote. I've done everything I possibly can. And, and there's a sense that we know it doesn't do much. We know that elections can be rigged. They can be stolen. We know, you know, your vote out of millions doesn't do a lot anyway. Um, Especially not can, in Massachusetts. Can, that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, I have, I have a little, little power with my vote in Virginia, but not a lot because we have Northern Virginia that's going to outweigh the rest of the state in every election. Yeah. Um, what do you say to someone like that? A Christian who says, what can I do? I want to see America change. I want to see America to be a Christian nation. How do I get there? What do I do as an individual that can make any difference? Yeah. Um, well, where, where I start in the article is just be a faithful member of a local church. Um, and what I try to tell our people is that the, the angst and the frustration and the, and the um, disappointment that you feel is real. I mean, let's acknowledge that the country is heading in the wrong direction. We're being led by... Um, by moral idiots. And that's disappointing and discouraging. And we can acknowledge that, but the solution is not, um, 
it, it's not a quick fix and it's not something that we can do uh, very fast. So be a faithful member of a local church, help that church convert people to Christ by preaching the true gospel. So number one, go to a church where the gospel's preached and it's not watered down and it's not compromised and it's not uh, name it and claim it and whatever other perversions you can go to. Go to a place that preaches the, the real gospel where Christians are being made. If you want to have a yeah. Christian nation, we have to make Christians. And then the second thing I would say is discipleship. I've been in the church. Um, I, I know from my youthful appearance, it hasn't been that long, but uh, <laughs> I've been in the church long enough to know that discipleship yeah. is is almost entirely avoided. We've, we've adopted mm-hmm. a sort of Billy Graham era evangelistic, uh, convert them and move on sort of mentality. Uh, my first church as a Christian was Elevation. That's where I went oh, wow. to church. I, I know. <laughs> I didn't know that. <clears throat> I, I don't tell many people. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but that was sort of the the environment that I grew up in as a Christian, secretly listening to R.C. Sproul uh, on the side, which is what <laughs> undid me. But but noticing this idea that um, that we have to convert as many people as we possibly can and keep them in perpetual immaturity because an imminent rapture is upon the horizon. And we're not going to disciple you. That's your job as a Christian. You need to go home and do that yourself. And once you grow up, then we need your seat. Get out of the church. That was sort of the, right. the flavor of Christianity I grew up in. It just, over time, I realized how foolish that is, that if we want to see real change happen, then we actually have to disciple Christians to do what Jesus said, to know what Jesus said, to love what Jesus said, and then to to grow into doing it. Yeah. Um, so in my article, I say, those two steps alone, if if we would have been doing that for the last 50 years, we wouldn't be where we're at right now. Right. And in, in your article, you bring it to the Great Commission, where we're to disciple the nations. Yeah. And I think that's an important verb there, because we're not told to convert the nations. Right. We're told to disciple the nations, which means baptizing them and teaching them obedience. You walk Amen. in obedience to Christ. So Amen. that's that's part of the big picture. Um, I think a lot of our listeners are involved in Reformed churches. Uh, they're they're listening to the Kyperian podcast, so it's the sort of thing that they're uh, they're they're in a good church, probably. I'm guessing. If you're not, you should be. <laughs> and um, and so they're wanting to walk in obedience. So so maybe part of it is just uh, encourage them that what you're doing is going to bear fruit in the future. Right. right? Even if it doesn't look like it to your fleshly eyes, there's work that God's doing when you worship that you don't see. Right. And it's so, it's so tempting too, because um, all of us are prone to discouragement. I mean, uh, I wrote the article and I get discouraged all the time and, and I look out at the culture and I forget how important it is for me to go home and love my wife and every day put in a faithful um, effort towards discipling and caring for my children. And what we, what we tend to forget because everything is based off of dopamine, uh, hits and, and quick and easy, uh, burst of, of news cycles and everything else. We forget that a slow and steady obedience in the same direction is so important when my children have, um, when they're in their thirties and they're in their forties and they have a legacy of, of family worship that they've grown up in now that they're bringing their children into uh, that sort of legacy. That's the fruit Jesus talks about in John 15. That's going to remain um, that, that the fruit that he wants us to produce will remain. That's it. It's just that oftentimes we get discouraged and we give up or we, 
or we forget the little things. I think the little things are so important. Right. Yeah. And your article kind of follows this path too of convert disciple. And then that grows from there into marriage and then into to raising children, like right. you're talking about. You're raising your children faithfully, and then it grows out from there. So what, right. what are the following steps to that? Individuals, families. Yeah. Well, just to add a note to that, Rick, um, I first saw this in, in Genesis 1. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you strip the world of sin in the fall, and you ask yourself, what did God command Adam and Eve to do? Well, they, Adam was to follow the commands. He was to be discipled by the commands God gave him, and he was to take those and share them with his wife. And then in fruitful, multiplying relationship called marriage, he was to inculcate those values into his children and to have a family that grew so large that the Garden of Eden couldn't hold them anymore. So they'd have to extend the boundaries until eventually the entire world is, is filled with people who love God and who are uh, bringing life to the planet. And then you know, obviously we know that that wasn't God's plan to do that then, but through Christ, um, in the great commission, he's, he's coming back and, and hitting that and saying, no, th- I'm the true and better Adam who will see mm-hmm. my people be fruitful and multiply. So as I looked at that, I was like, well, God set a paradigm there in the beginning that begins with discipleship of Adam and then marriage and then children. So that has to be our first steps because, uh, we can't just stop at discipleship. Discipling someone is teaching them how to be who God made them to be. If you're a man teaching right. you how to be a godly man, um, if you're a woman, how to be a godly woman. And then all of these verses come to bear on that uh, in the home and in the family. So I think starting there, if the average Christian would spend the majority of their Christian life focused on uh, faithful participation in the local church and faithful family, um, we would have a kind of Christian culture among the church that would be so attractive to those who are lost because what is going on in the world can't last. Yeah. It's a spinning top that is going to collapse. You can't continue to chop off women's breasts and chemically castrate young boys and think that that's a winning ethic for the future. Yeah. So eventually they're going to see that and that's going to become attractive and they're going to, I think that's a compelling vision. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Nature is what it is, and it's what God created it to be. So I feel like our culture right now is sort of at that point where, you know, Wiley Cody has run off the cliff, but he hasn't looked down yet. So he's treading air, but eventually you're going to crash. It's going to come falling down. Um, You know, that's something I've seen in our church. As as our church has grown, we've had people come who want to know how to be Christian husbands, how to be Christian wives, Christian parents, because the churches they came from we're teaching them how to get saved every week and they're saved okay what do i do next and the answer is we'll teach a sunday school class or go on a short-term mission trip but but the idea of your day-to-day life being transformed by christ it's just not being taught and people i think are you know when i look at um social media i see people who are hungry for that kind of teaching i see a lot of people who want that um i don't know what your situation is like there in Massachusetts. Uh, but is that something you're seeing as well? Oh yeah. People. Yeah. I think that, I think this is this idea of, of, um, forgetting the family and making everything, everything is sacred. Um, so I'm not, I'm not saying that it's not, but to, to make everything church focused, like volunteer for this ministry, uh, do this, go on this mission trip. Like you were saying, 
has been something that's really actually uh, undermined Christian discipleship of the right. home. What I'm seeing is people want to know how to disciple their children. They want to know how to do family worship that, and no one has ever taught them before. And the, the great shock is when they realize that this is what the word tells them to be involved in. They, they're asking questions like, why didn't the generation ahead of us ever teach us how to do this? Mm-hmm. I've never, I've, I grew up in the church. I went to a Christian school. I've never heard of family worship or catechisms or confessions. I never heard of any of that until I was yeah. in my late twenties. Wow. Which is just astounding to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there, there were always families in churches when, when I was growing up, you would always know the families that were doing a good job of that, but you might not know why. And, and I remember even in the paradigm it was in, it was sort of, well, everyone has free will. So they just got lucky that all of their kids just happened to use right. their free will to choose Jesus. But, right. <laughs> but it's not everyone gets that lucky. And, right. and so there's no recognition that there's discipleship that you can do that's going to have certain effects and that you ought to be doing. So, right. yeah, yeah, I see that um, a lot. And that's yeah. sort of what we've been focused on here is, um, is and Doug Wilson's uh, ministry out in Moscow has been so helpful for me, like um, just his whole family series and and sort of trying to bring all of these great reform truths down into the family and and having that as such a focus. So uh, articles we're writing, uh, counseling sessions we're doing, Sunday school classes we're teaching, sermons that applications that we're bringing into the sermons, everything has sort of been nailed down and drilled down into this idea of helping people at every possible angle understand how the gospel comes to bear in their home and in their family. Right. And you go on in your article to talk about, you know, so you've got your family. By this time, hopefully your family's doing well. You talk about the family as a missionary to the neighborhood and to the to the greater city. Um, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So as as the church is doing its job in preaching the gospel, making disciples, <laughs> training up those disciples to enter godly marriages and and then raise up godly children, we're going to have families that are thriving. And we're going to have families that are looking to use the giftings that God has given them in all sorts of ways. Uh, I, I tend to think that um, the greatest gift that a Christian can give to the local church is to be present and to be listening and to pay attention and to be participating in the local uh, in the worship service. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I've seen so many churches that that tell people, "Hey, show up 30 minutes early and you be a kids volunteer." And those people come and they oftentimes are so busy, they don't even get into public worship. They don't get a yeah. chance to, to eat at the Lord's table and they're wasting their service on things that don't matter. And then the, the church has sort of subtly communicated to this family that that's your Christian service. And mm. the unfortunate reality is they leave church thinking I've served the Lord this week. And then they go and live secular lives thinking that they've checked something off their list. I've seen right. it. So we want to convince people that that your greatest act of service is to participate in worship and to leave here and take the gospel with you. Um, take it into your into your home, take it into your relationships, take it into your job, be a Christian. You know, I remember Martin Luther once said, um, there was a, a guy that came up to him and said, hey, um, what do I need to do now? I'm a Christian. And Luther said, well, what do you do currently? And he said, I'm a shoemaker. And Luther said, well, make a good shoe. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's this idea that that as Christians, we ought to be the best workers, 
because we're, everything we do is to the glory of God. So therefore our labor is glorious. It's an offering to right. Jesus. And as we take that sort of passionate approach where, where we're doing everything to give glory to God, we are going to be missionaries. People are going to ask us, people are going to wonder why we have this hope. And, and that's going to open up conversations. And it's also going to open up opportunities for our giftings. Uh, just because you're gifted at something doesn't mean you necessarily have to do it on Sunday. Maybe the Lord has gifted you to do something in your, in your school board, or maybe he's gifted you to do something in your town. Um, it's all the kingdom of God. Um, but, you know, I, that's what I bring up in the article is use your giftings in your local cities and neighborhoods. Start with neighborhoods and then build out from there. Right. And then um, you talk about those neighborhoods, Christianizing cities, which which expand. So it's very much that center outward approach starting mm -hmm. in the church. It starts in the church, works outward through society right. until you are electing Christian politicians. Amen. And they're wanting to know, OK, how do we govern like Christians? Amen. Um, yeah, I, I, I remember. I, go ahead. Oh, real quick. I was, I was thinking about I'm in the CREC. You're in the CREC um, that. I, I was thinking about 20 years from now, if if all of us focused on family and our families focused on uh, uh, raising up children and then being a light to our neighborhoods, um, how the narrative of the CREC might change in the mm -hmm. in the future. Because yeah. you know, I read so much uh, from the uh, from the Wilson derangement side, <laughs> and uh, and the don't join the CREC. I was told that because they're the pedo communion folks and. And there was just, um, there's, there's a lot of, not just with CREC, there's a lot of infighting in the reformed community. Oh yeah. There's a lot of frustration. There's, there's people who are throwing around, like the world calls us racist, but we're calling each other Christian nationalist or this or that. And it's just, it's silly and stupid. If we would focus on a compelling vision, I really do think that, yeah. that it would unify all of the, the little severed parts of the reformed movement. We mm -hmm. might actually unite together and then we'd see Wouldn't states. That be great. Come. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> well, even with the CREC, I mean, that has been a focus for years, uh, starting with, you know, the Wilsons published their family books, and that was what drew a lot of people to the CREC. Did you see the statistics that were published? I think 2018. Um, I don't know that they were publicly published, but sent to council of uh families in the CREC, and that was before your your church was in. It was for but our time. That was before our church a, was planted. Someone did a, a study of every CREC church at the time and children that had grown up in the church and where they were now. And the retention rate of children uh, growing up in CREC families and still being Christians well into adulthood was, it was 97 or 98%. It was really high. And if you compare that, if you compare that to the you know, standard evangelical church. It's, it's wild. Um, so I'd love to see that done again. It's been, you know, several years now. I'd like to see if that trend is continuing. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that's, you're right. That's an important thing. We want to see faithful families over generations, not just in the short run. Right. And, um, and I think we see that. I think that is happening. So that's good. Imagine Imagine a day when the R. Scott Clarks and the Doug Wilsons uh, are on the same team fighting for the same purpose because <laughs> yeah. we have a compelling vision. Exactly. Yeah, and, and centered around what you like, what you are in favor of. Yeah. Right? 
Um, That's such a good point too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How much are we always about what we're against? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's a hard balance, isn't it? You know, when you, you look at the world and you say, look at everything going wrong and you just want to react and, um, and not have that shared vision of here's where we're going. Here's what we want. Right. It's it's so easy and and there's a place for it um, because our people need to hear um, to beware. Uh, a good shepherd will point out where the wolf is and and to and to identify the danger. So it, it's absolutely necessary, but it's so intoxicating to get on mm-hmm. that and stay on that that you're actually you 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 end up as a flock and you being an under shepherd you end up stopped and stagnant. And all you are now is a wolf identifying ministry. Um, Instead of actually going somewhere, you, you really do have to remember that it's a twofold job where we're, we're taking the flock towards Christ. And at the same time, we're identifying hazards that are in the way we have to do both. Right. Wasn't it Calvin that said that, that, uh, the shepherd has two voices, one for driving away the wolves, one for calling the sheep. I think, you know what, I think as, I was, Calvin. <laughs> as I was, as I was saying, it, I was like, man, this is really profound. And of course, somebody else <laughs> of course it's has already said it. <laughs> oh, that's how it is. I, I find myself doing that all the time where I think, oh man, I just came up with the best analogy. Of the <laughs> right. And then you realize, oh, I read that 10 years ago somewhere. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. Calvin said this really good thing. You should all go read it. That's right. That's right. Just, just go read his sermons. Yeah. Um, amen. Yeah. So uh, your article goes uh missionary to the neighborhood neighborhood to the city city to the commonwealth and growing into uh, a reformation from the ground up um what's going on in your church right now that's working toward that well we um massachusetts is a funny place um Mm -hmm. and it's often misunderstood by um by folks who don't live here it's it's actually a lot more conservative um, than, than maybe folks realize. So when I moved here, I moved here from North Carolina. So shared culture from Virginia, right. Or at least Southern Virginia. Um, and everybody I talked to was like, why would you go there? That's like Babylon. Um, (laughs) I wasn't going to say it, but (laughs) uh, maybe so in, in Boston and Somerville and some of those places, but there's actually a lot of people who see how crazy things are and they see that it's not working and, and they're, they're sort of silent, quiet conservatives. Um, but that doesn't mean that they've been discipled as Christians. And we also have a Catholic contingency that's really high here. And we have, um, in reaction to that, we have a high charismatic population, Mm. but we really don't have a lot of reformed churches at all. So most of the people that, that we meet, are not coming from reformed backgrounds and have not been discipled in reformed thinking. We're having conversations about, uh, did God really predestinate? Um, and we've not, we've not yet got a chance to really lay deep ecclesi- reformed ecclesiological roots, but right. uh, what a, what a gift to the church that is that, that people are hearing reformed truths, mm-hmm. they're learning, they're growing. And what I'm noticing is that these things are starting to take root, that families are starting to, to grow healthy. And we've actually had a lot of victories here where families are starting to do family worship together. They're starting to catechize their children, disciples. So I would say that we're in a very mission oriented place where these things have to begin at the bottom and and be built up. 
but that that's another reason why the article was so important for me is we are starting there. Mm -hmm. There's some places, maybe Moscow, maybe Lynchburg that are a little further along than mm -hmm. we are, but I needed a roadmap that started at the beginning. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have any of the situations where you get people, because we've had this over the years where people say, we love your families. We love your culture. We love what's going on here. Too bad about your doctrine. That's a real shame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've had that a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, the biggest one which, which this is, these things have been uh, percolating in my heart for, for four years now. Our church is almost four years old, so we're, we're mm -hmm. a baby church. Uh, but the, the, the doctrine that has caused more people to leave the Shepherd's Church than any other doctrine is that children should be with their parents in worship. Wow. That has caused the greatest schism or the greatest exodus of folks because children are loud and they're noisy and they're this and, and. I don't even entertain those things. I'm like, what does the Bible say? Mm -hmm. And how are they going to learn how to be Christians if we if we constantly tell them this doesn't belong to you? Right. And even more so than that, Jesus promised that he would that he would have an appointment with his people every week at the Lord's gathering that is unique and is non-repeatable. You can't go to your prayer closet on Monday and have what he promises in Matthew 18. Why would I tell my children that's not for you? Right. But, yeah, you know. and and I think probably the the weekly celebration of communion is a big deal with that as well. Oh yeah, because it keeps the service from turning into lecture time. And if that were what the service was, if it were we get a lecture about the Bible, yeah, kids are going to distract you from that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. that's the point. You know. This right. is going to go over their heads and they're not going to understand anyway. So why, why do we have them here? Yeah. So I think that refocus of what we're doing is we're meeting God. Amen. And you can't just do that in the same way on your own by yourself. Right. So, yeah. One of the ways that we try to do that um, is we have a joyful, um, a joyful reformed aroma. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, I remember in seminary that, um, I was, uh, I wanted to be a scholar when I went to seminary because it's in the air. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that I really wanted to be a pastor, Right. Uh, but, but all the people who wanted to go towards the pastoral track were, uh, were not really that interested in their schoolwork. They, it was a means to an end. Yeah. And all the people who really wanted to excel and learn the doctrines were just seminary was a stepping stone to PhD work. Right. I didn't really see a happy, robust, joyful um, reformed group that, that was trying to do both. And, and that's really what we're trying to do is, um, we're on the low church side of things, at least, mm -hmm. at least now we're growing, we're, we're, uh, covenant renewal, we're liturgical, we're all these things. Yeah. Um, but as far as the wrapping paper, we're a low church, but, but in that we give ourselves <laughs> permission to be really joyful about what right. God has done. And the kids love it. Like, I hear more amens coming out of, out of the children than I do the adults, the yeah. kids are belting out the hymns. Um, we had them up in front of the uh, congregation last week and they were singing the apostles creed. Oh, wow. Um, and they memorized the whole thing. And it's so invigorated the, the, the rest of us that we were like the rafters were shat or were, were shaking because of our, uh, because wow. of our praise after seeing the kids do that. So focusing on that, I think actually, um, accomplishes the the step of families in in the in the roadmap that I laid out is focus on families, be happy mm -hmm. about families, do whatever you can to to disciple them. Right, and I think that joy is is the the key thing. We want to have joyful 
families who love the Lord and are yeah. happy to um, and worship him robustly. Good. Amen. Well, we are about out of time here, Kendall, uh, but it's been great to talk to you and catch up. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, I'll see you in Moscow this fall for our big council meeting. Yes, sir. <laughs> That'll we'll be see good. you there. Yeah. Well, you have a good one. We'll talk to you later. God bless you, brother. Thank you for having me. Thank you.